Well, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour, an enormous privilege to be here at the Air Power Group Lecture at the Royal Aeronautical Society this evening, and particularly as it's part of the centenary of naval aviation. And not least, because I'm a new boy, and my, I've got a very junior membership number, with you know, lots of zeros. Uh, so thank you very much indeed for inviting me to address you. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, the, uh, the Joint Helicopter Command, with 15,000 personnel and about 400 aircraft, um, it comprises the battlefield helicopters in all three services and a potent air assault capability in the shape of 16 air assault brigade, the largest brigade in the British Army. Um, the JHC has been on continuous operations now since its inception in 1999, uh, having emerged as a consequence of this strategic defence review. Now, <clears throat> however, having cut its teeth in Bosnia and Sierra Leone, the JHC has really come of age since 2003 through operations, as you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I spoke very recently at the Sir Alan Cobham lecture at the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators and explained over the last 10 years how we've adapted to Frank Hoffman's definition of the hybrid warrior and the conditions in which we've been fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq and the way we've been, we've transformed in contact with the Navy. However, I'm not going to repeat myself tonight. Uh, and for those who were there, those loyal souls, was anybody there at the Gapan? Yeah! Hurrah! Um, who heard me only two months ago. I'm not going to go through all that again. Um, but for those who weren't there, what I'm going to do is to quickly summarize my thesis and tell you where we finished uh, in that lecture and then take you the debate on further uh, and where it fits in. Explore where I see the role of battlefield aviation going on in Afghanistan, where it fits in uh, with future conflict. Uh, and then I'd like to discuss what this means for the defence industry, uh, the Joint Helicopter Command in the future, and a possible defence review. Uh, and then I'd like to leave you with a challenge, uh, particularly those from the defence industry here tonight. Um, and what I'd like to hear from you, uh, I know you're not supposed to do this in the lectures, but I, I am. Um, if there's one thing that uh, you think that the defence industry could or should do to help us deliver a more effective battlefield helicopter capability in the future, what would it be? Uh, and perhaps we can explore those questions over uh, in discussions later, and, and I'll pull the hand grenade out, uh, the, the pin out. Now, where did I leave Gapan at the end of April? Um, having acted independently and rather inefficiently in Bosnia, the single services came together in Iraq and Afghanistan with a joint helicopter force in each theatre. Now, six years ago in Basra, this brought home the true value of operating jointly with JHF Iraq, which combined the efforts of RAF Puma, Merlin Mark III's and Chinook's Royal Navy Sea Kings, and Royal Navy and Army Air Corps links from the same aircraft, common operating procedures, a single point of command rotated through each service, and all sharing the same accommodation, briefing, engineering, eating, and relaxing facilities, and all working directly for the British general in command of the region, Father Brigade Commander, and embedded in their staffs. And again, it seems a blinding glimpse of the obvious, or a BGO, now, but in one fell swoop, it created a unity of effort and a clarity of command, while still capitalising on the mix of capabilities needed by the land commander, as well as preserving the single service ethos and different perspectives of the aircrew flying their respective aircraft type. Now, the RAF's doctrinal mantra of centralised command for decentralised effect 
holds absolutely true for the joint battlefield helicopter, operational and non-operational output of the JHC, where you've got a joint force in theatre and a coordinated and unified joint command at home. So in short, the intense operational tempo, combined with the requirement to deliver such a broad range of aviation, could not be achieved without the joint helicopter force. And our output is certainly greater than the sum of the single individual service parts. The second issue is how we're combating the hybrid warrior we discussed uh, with our aircraft in Afghanistan particularly. And my belief that aviation, battlefield aviation, provides the perfect antidote to this form of warfare. Um, the defining aspects of battlefield aviation are its inherent flexibility and adaptability, which encompasses not only the ultimate in utility, but also in its agility, reach, and potential lethality, all of which are aspects currently attributed to the advantages <coughs> possessed by the hybrid warrior. The key aspect is our, our ability to deny the enemy the advantages and safe havens provided by dense urban terrain, where, they current, where currently he can exploit the density of population, transportation networks, public services, and local infrastructure, and hide, plan, rehearse, and then escape from Allied forces at will. Similarly, the enemy is trying to deny us our operational and strategic objectives by disrupting our freedom of, of action, denying us access, preventing us from intervening successfully, and ultimately driving up the costs of intervention uh, at the end of the day. However, our battlefield helicopter's ability to swing from operating from the urban metropolis and follow the enemy into the desert, jungle, mountainous or maritime domains without having to reset our forces, either conceptually or practically, is the way that we will stay ahead of him and retain the initiative. Consequently, we're configuring our battlefield helicopter forces with a specialist capability required to anticipate and adapt our tactics in order to preempt and prosecute the enemy, as well as the generalist skills to enable our forces the maximum mobility, speed, and force protection. But to do so, we need to ensure that this range of capabilities can be deployed either independently as a coordinated force with other enablers and always fully integrated with the land force that we're supporting. Joint helicopter forces should be fully capable of providing real-time intelligence, collection, surveillance and reconnaissance to ground forces whilst also being confident in their self-protection from small arms, rocket-propelled grenade or manned pads attacks. However, they should be capable of swinging from the intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition and recce, I-star uh, role into either an interdiction or attack role, a troop-carrying role, or indeed perform provincial reconstruction activities or humanitarian ops. So whilst the four broad categories of light utility, find I-star, attack and lift have been key in presenting a menu of choice for the land commander and have been convenient pigeonholes, for us all in the past, now I see them as being too simplistic. As the sophistication and complexity of the threat in both Iraq and Afghanistan have increased, so the tasking of our aircraft and demands of our, on our aircrew have had to keep pace. As the skills of our aircrew have developed, the training and core skill bar uh, have, has been raised in order to reflect the complexity of our current operations and the boundaries between 
the rather neat traditional roles of helicopters have blurred, and their spheres of influence and effect now overlap significantly. And I should explore what that means uh, for our battlefield helicopters in the future, but I suspect you can guess what I'm going to say. I finished with the true meaning of hybrid warfare and where it sits in the future of warfare. And I particularly like Dr. Michael Evans's description when he says that there are wars in which Microsoft coexists with machetes and stealth technology is met with suicide bombers. But labels are not important. What is more of a priority is how we're dealing with it if we're serious about succeeding. What is also more significant is that battlefield aviation, and specifically the dynamism created by helicopters, have become a mission-critical capability for the land commander across the full spectrum of operations, from humanitarian relief and stability operations right through to counter-narcotics, counter-insurgency ops, and full-scale warfighting. <coughs> Hybrid warfare now demands that we do all this, but at the same time. In Hoffman's words, its chief characteristics being simultaneity, convergence, and combinations. At one end of this scale, we need to resource and train our joint helicopter forces with our land forces to maximize the land commander's capacity to generate tempo, seize the initiative, take the battle to the enemy, and, if necessary, dislocate and destroy him as swiftly and decisively as possible. He needs to be able to capitalize on fleeting opportunities, exploit advantage and surprise, and maximize his forces' mobility and maneuver. In short, in terms of aviation, I want to create a situation where all our helicopters are seen simultaneously as beacons of hope and saviors in the eyes of our troops and the local po population on one hand, whether de delivering humanitarian aid or medical evacuation, yet at the same time capable of swinging into a troop-carrying or attack role and striking terror into the hearts of the enemies on the other. But what's that really mean when we deliberate about the character of future conflict? My view is that the way that the debate on future warfare has been presented to date is in danger of becoming oversimplistic and one-dimensional. As a result, it has a very real danger of becoming intellectually redundant and reduced to a binary choice, or false dichotomy, over whether, in our preparations for future warfare, we should choose between hybrid warfare on one hand or state-on-state -state major combat operations on the other. The reality is that there is a very real requirement to prepare for both. As we prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are utterly incapable of predicting the future and we're continually surprised by the unexpected. As Professor Michael Howard has observed, no matter how clearly one thinks, it is impossible to anticipate precisely the character of future conflict. The key is to not be so far off the mark that it becomes impossible to adjust once that character is revealed. Now, like most pilots, I work best with pictures. Uh, so I visualize this as an intricately embroidered tapestry or giant Persian rug. Uh, which covers the entire battle space. The pictures, or cameos on the tapestry, for me represents the various groups involved, from the combatants to the civil population or NGOs. All their activities, their challenges, threats, and the differing levels of conflict or activity. But when viewed close up, 
You can see the detailed pictures and different coloured weave, and the way in which each activity is being played out. But in order to see the whole picture, you have to stand right back, and only then can you appreciate that this is a dynamic and not a linear concept of sequenced manoeuvre governed by the relatively predictable logic of cause and effect. It is simultaneous in time and space. It embraces the environmental, political, economic, and legal spheres. It's chaotic, challenging, changing, dynamic, and unpredictable. If Professor Rob Colin Gray is right, and we're facing another bloody century, and I think that he is right, I sense that we will be committed increasingly to conflicts with, which are not wars of national survival, but wars which will be less discretionary where we're committed due to our obligations to our allies and our multilateral relationships. Political will and public support will also be key. But what will become increasingly non-discretionary is the requirement to achieve success once our forces have been committed. Hybrid conflicts will continue to proliferate in different forms, ranging from the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Russian conflict with Georgia last summer to the fierce defence of, of Grozny by the Chechens and Hezbollah's tactics against the Israeli incursion of Lebanon in 2006, all of which are not aberrations, but variations on the same theme of, of conflict. However, in, in addition to land focus operations, conflict will also occur across the maritime and air environments, as well as reaching deep into the cyberspace, space and information environments. Urban areas, centres of dense population, and the littoral will continue to dominate the conflict agenda, if only because those areas will provide the keys to ultimate conflict resolution. But the maritime and air environments will also play crucial roles in deterrence and preventative engagement. So where does battlefield aviation fit in? Well, again, I think you can probably guess what I'm going to say. If we accept that the majority of operations will be expeditionary and conducted at range, as well as being highly complex, extremely demanding, and, whilst hoping that they'll be over quickly, they may well turn out to be enduring, we will need forces which will be extremely adaptable, adaptable to the demands of doing stabilization operations right through to major combat operations simultaneously, and capable of adapting rapidly to a changing tempo and the consequences of our own actions. The, ubiqu the ubiquity, agility and versatility of battlefield aviation answers this requirement perfectly. The ability of our Chinooks and Merlins to conduct both an aviation assault on one moment and then swing into an immediate response team the next with a consultant trauma specialist and his team embarked is indicative of this unique capability. It transcends the binary debate that I talked about earlier and can provide a critical enabler which equips the land, air or maritime commander with the capability to move between deterrence, preventative engagement, containment, war fighting, combat and stabilization operations seamlessly and then back again if required. The principal aim being, of course, to win the battle for the people, improve their security, establish a legitimate government in the eyes of the population and not to allow the destruction of the enemy to become the end in itself. 
So what does this mean for the defense industry? In the broader context, this means that we need to harness the defense industry's capability for technological development. It's clear that the commercial sector has now taken the lead from the military establishment in the speed with which it can develop and introduce new technologies. So our acquisition process needs to be far more agile in order to capitalize on technologies which are both available now and emerging in the near future. This requirement has been given increased impetus as our enemies are currently exploiting low-cost and readily available complex technologies in order to undermine our tactics and gain an asymmetric advantage. In Afghanistan, I'm sure that the Taliban is no stranger to the latest Pentiums and encrypted cell phones, just like the pirates of Somalia and the drug runners in the Caribbean Sea are all provided with the most sophisticated technology that their sponsors can afford. The technologies that we need to embrace and work with the defense industry to develop are those which will enable us to gather, process, and exploit intelligence more effectively, create more accurate and faster targeting capabilities, and increase the capability of autonomous and unmanned air and ground vehicles. Similarly, the coordination of our ground and air fires, the use of novel weapons, and network information are all areas where robotics, nanotechnology, information and computing technology, quantum technology, and biotechnology can give us the means and therefore the intellectual agility to understand and interpret the hybrid tapestry that I mentioned earlier and the dynamic combat capability that will keep us ahead of the hybrid warrior. From a battlefield helicopter perspective, this means that we need to aim for fewer aircraft types and fewer fleets within fleets. We need aircraft with a maximum capability and flexibility. They need to, need to be able to lift troops, conduct medevac, data link with UAVs and the ground forces, pass real-time full motion video and bring fires to bear if necessary. In the future, the aircraft will need to be able to swing between roles and operate across the spectrum of environments more readily, notably from the sea to the land environments and back again. They should be capable of more rapid technology insertion in order to keep up with the increasingly cluttered, congested and hostile aviation and networked battle space. Equipping our helicopters with a theatre entry standard capability is an obvious requirement and it's axiomatic that we should have sufficient aircraft to train on before the crews deploy to theatre. The crucial importance of having the latest technology cannot be overstated, such as robust and reliable defensive aid suites, interoperable and reliable secure communications, intuitive spatial awareness and location aids across the range of environments, whether desert, jungle, maritime or urban, and an instinctive target identification acquisition and engagement capability. The environment will always be an enemy for our rotorcraft, especially in the extremes of temperature uh, and weather that they have to endure in order to operate and fight the human enemy. The challenges presented by dust landings and extremely low ambient light conditions that exist in the far and Middle East are well documented, and we're relying so much on the extraordinary courage and flying skills of our pilots to continue to operate in theatre, that their nightly acts of heroism under fire in what we call red alum conditions are in now 
in danger of becoming almost routine. The challenges of working on the aircraft by our ground crew and engineers in these punishing conditions are also well known to you. I was in Afghanistan two weeks ago, and today, with temperatures well over 40 degrees centigrade, within 20 seconds of entering the cockpit, on the pan, our maintainers are completely soaked in sweat, and we have to swap them around after about 20 minutes in order to allow them to recover and rehydrate. Similarly, the ease with which they can diagnose the fault, find the part and the tools required, and then fix the problem, varies considerably with the type of aircraft and the levels of snow, wind, salt, dust and heat that they're having to endure, all depending on where they've been deployed. In the future, it will be interesting to see how the challenges of our current operations are reflected in the ergonomics of aircraft design, maintenance and repair. But how does this all fit in with the Joint Helicopter Command? Well, it won't surprise you to, to hear that the JHC is very well placed to deal with this uncertain future. One of my mantras is JHC jointery works. It's precisely because we all come from different stables that the, that the Joint Helicopter Command works so well. We've combined the very best from all three environments, whether preserving the, that crucial expertise from each one, from the Commander Helicopter Forces expertise in the literal, to the Army Air Corps' instinctive understanding of the land battle, and the RAF, the RAF Support Helicopter Forces' unique combination of air-mindedness that links with the air battle, as well as their deep understanding of the land commander's need for tempo and agility. As a result, the key tenets of future warfare are fully covered, from the requirement for agility to versatility which we've already discussed. But it's also released a far more important facet that up until recently I hadn't noticed before. <clears throat> By combining as a joint command, but celebrating our single service differences, we've retained a challenging and inquisitive culture, which has nurtured an intellectual agility and a mental fitness. This manifests itself in a willingness to challenge the status quo without threatening structures or authority an institutional capability to think laterally, and an ability to accept best practice, even if it means changing the habits of a lifetime. Again, this is something we should continue to nurture and develop, as I suspect we'll find it invaluable over the next decade. But how will this play out in the, in the defence review, should one happen? So, should we be faced with a defence review next year? I would suggest that we need to look hard and how defence can transition from an organisation which is pre predominantly configured and equipped to fight a conventional enemy to one which has the dexterity to deal with the complexities that we're facing in Afghanistan, at the same time as being able to adjust in Michael Howard's terms and take on an enemy at a larger scale in conflict once that character of conflict is revealed. We need to embrace the information age with enormous enthusiasm and not sit to one side at a respectable distance watching it grow with a slightly nervous look on our faces. For example, our relationship with the media is often portrayed as an adversarial one rather than which one in which both sides can achieve their aims. The information battle space of the future will become increasingly dominated 
by an independent media operator on the ground, at the scene of the incident, who can stream his or her copy direct to the world and bypass the conventional media outlets, whether established TV stations, newspapers or radio. And the conventional roles of the editors and media moguls will weaken in influence over these media bounty hunters, as I call them. A defence review should consider our ability to develop an information and an influence campaign and have the agility to adapt it to respond to adverse propaganda before the latter seizes the initiative and dominates the narrative, either nationally or internationally. Similarly, we need to develop our understanding and capability in the space and cyberspace environments. To do this, our networks, encryption, intelligence gathering, processing and exploitation capabilities need to be far more sophisticated. We need to structure, equip and train increasingly as a coalition, keep pace with the US in quality, not quantity, and ensure that we and our other coalition NATO partners are capable of the maximum interoperability, not only with each other, but also with the national and international agencies and NGOs. And at the other end of the scale, we also need to ensure that on those operations, <coughs> that all those on operations really understand the enemy that we're fighting culturally, linguistically, anthropologically, and psychologically. And I mentioned this at Gapan. Sun Tzu was right 2,500 years ago when he said, know your enemy and know yourself. In a hundred battles, you will never be in peril. But to do this, we need to configure ourselves differently and invest in a broader approach to our preparations for operations, which balances our investment in equipment and training with far more education particularly in the languages and cultures of the nations that we're trying to help. So to conclude, I'm aware that I've covered an enormous canvas this evening, and I've done it deliberately to stimulate debate. I wanted to take the conversation that we've had over the last few months, whether here at the Royal Aeronautical Society, or at Helipower, the European Defence Agency, GAPAN, the Chief of the Air Staff's Air Power Conference, or at various RUSI conferences, on to the so what stage. We're facing a moment of enormous change. We all see ourselves as imaginative, intellectually agile, and capable of significant mental leaps. But, however hard we've tried, defence has a pretty mixed reputation for its ability to change direction quickly. I'm sure you've all heard this before, but Basil Littlehart's observation serves as a timely reminder when he said that the only thing harder than getting a new idea into the military mind is to get an old one out. We mustn't fall into the trap that we faced in 1940, where our sporadic start to the war wasn't so much a lack due to a lack of technology, but rather an institutional inability to adapt and think laterally. We must ensure that we can develop our organizational ability to learn and adapt and remain intellectually, conceptually, and practically responsive to change and emerging requirements. In short, our ability to accelerate the tempo on our terms must outstrip that of our adversaries. In the future, we will be faced with the hybrid challenges I've talked about. But the debate we have should not be reduced to a binary choice or menu 
of conflict options uh, for which we should prepare. I am sure that we should be required to conduct the full range of activities, including deterrence, war fighting, combat, and stabilization operations, all probably simultaneously in the future. But rather, but rather than dwell on the labels of conflict, we should concentrate on how well equipped we are to deal with them. And from my point of view, battlefield helicopters have a crucial role to play across, across the whole of the hybrid battle space tapestry. We just need to ensure that the aircraft are equipped and supported appropriately and that our people are trained and sustained with their families to the highest level possible. In their book, Fixing Failed States, Ashraf Ghani and Claire Lockhart talk about open moments in history when we're faced with challenges that outstrip our established ways of understanding and acting. They say, how we frame the problems and their solutions will determine whether we collaborate productively or make the clash of civilization civilizations a self-fulfilling prophecy. An inclusive global order is within our grasp. Our actions could also provoke a further descent into disorder, uncertainty and violence. Open moments are most productive when leaders who see the future in the present seize opportunities. Well, I agree with them. I agree with them that we are indeed at an open moment. Only I would call it a golden moment, where we must seize the opportunity to decide on exactly what we need, reshape our structures, capitalize on what capabilities we possess, and invest in those that we don't. Now, back to the challenge I gave you. If there was one thing that defense head industry could, could or should do to help us deliver a more effective battlefield helicopter capability in the future, what should it be? Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. A challenge indeed. It'll be interesting to see whether some of the labels that the Admiral has talked about are actually resurrected when we come into defense review territory. The cynic in me suggests that they probably will. Um, and make no mistake about it, the stakes would be pretty high when we get to that stage. The other thing that I'd like you to ponder on um, is if the Joint Helicopter Command jointry works, is it a model of best practice that we should spread wider than just the helicopter force? Do we have the intellectual agility that we have always talked about to think in that way, or are we going to go back to the 1930s and go back to trying questions, thoughts from the audience, in particular, about this challenge? Uh, Richard Fakes, uh, I actually now work for Augusta Westland, uh, but I'm not going to ask you a question about industry. Um, but first of all, may I just say um, thank you very much, and I'm sure on behalf of everybody, for a, a very dynamic uh, lecture that's certainly thought-provoking. And um, and it really makes me, uh, it spurs me to ask this question. Um, you very early on in the talk mentioned the uh, construct of the um, uh, groupings that you have in Afghanistan right now, the um, 
I forgot the name of the, ter- the term used it, um, uh, joint... Joint helicopter force. Yeah, joint helicopter force you have out there. <coughs> now, that's absolutely obvi- an obvious way of doing business out in the particular scenario that you find in Afghanistan and indeed Iraq, where you've got relatively stable tactical areas of responsibility given to certain nations, um, and you're working in a sense in an occupational as, um, uh, scenario, albeit I fully understand there's <coughs> some significant combat uh, going on there. Um, you also mentioned that that construct came really with those two particular conflict, conflicts uh, building up. And before that, and indeed in the early days of the Joint Helicopter Command, where there was some surprise that 16 Brigade was included in what many thought was going to be a, a solely helicopter construct, where we saw in the early days General Peter Wall, or as he is now, Brigadier Peter Wall as he was then, taking his brigade and really conducting um, uh, maneuver operations, and in particular developing the aviation maneuver battle group, which saw its day in the 2003 conflict where we saw a battle group headquarters, an aviation battle group headquarters, actually commanding at one stage, I think, two warrior companies, an artillery, an engineer squadron, and a a household cavalry squadron. And indeed, given its own maneuver area and given its own uh, mission to go and exploit, as it was in fact in the battle, to the northeast of the uh, oil fields, mm. which he did extremely successfully. But, it, but in that scenario, you had the helicopters under the command of the brigade and not as a separate mm. joint helicopter force mm. grouping. Mm. My question is this. Um, since we're now in the new construct of these mm. two major operations, Iraq and Afghanistan, are we losing those skills which ironically were actually being developed for the advent of the attack helicopter, but were first deployed before the AH came into service. Um, Are we beginning to lose those key skills? And are we still conducting those critical exercises Mm. where you've got aviation headquarters still going to battle group uh, headquarters uh, exercises at Warminster and all the rest of it, Mm. or are we crucially losing that particular end of high-end warfare, or aspect of high-end warfare. Thank you, Richard. The the answer is we haven't lost it, but it's it's in danger of of uh, getting smaller. The the but the um, the way we we have our joint helicopter forces and that construct is not, uh, and the way we did it in the Gulf War is not necessarily they're not mutually exclusive. Um, it, again, it's it, there were, it was a very different sort of battle there. But that doesn't mean to say, as, as I've said already, that we won't meet it again or won't need it. Now, the reason why I'm optimistic uh, and uh, I'm reassured that we won't lose those skills because of the construct of the Joint Helicopter Command. And I think key to that is keeping 16 Aerosol Brigade within it uh, because I'm a passionate fan of the AH, but I feel that we haven't delivered the full potential of the attack helicopter yet. We happen to have found it's the most cracking uh, vehicle in, in com- close combat attack uh, and close air support <coughs> in that theatre at the moment. But <coughs> we, there is far more, I'm sure, that it can do. So my task to the commander of 16 Air Assault Brigade is 
I want you to develop your air-mindedness as an air-mobile brigade and um, use, push the AH to its limit through experimentation and exercising um, as, as Wildcat comes in as well. Because I think, should the balloon go up somewhere else one day and we need another fire brigade somewhere else in the world, I can be quite sure that our uh, 16-hour assault brigade is part of our small-scale focused intervention um, capability. Uh, and that would be exactly where we might need that sort of capability as you described it. So um, it's an issue that we need to work on because we haven't been able to, due to the intensity of the tom tempo of operations we've got at the moment, but it's something that is at your, right on the money, Richard, and I think something we need to... We haven't forgotten, but we will. It's firmly on the on the map. Uh, Gordon Woolley, the medium sport helicopter aircrew training facility at Benson. Uh, <coughs> and my question um, centres clearly on training, but uh, yeah. may I echo the comments and, uh, and thank you for the presentation. May I, as a quick plea, ask that it's distributed and that you also provide sources for the... Uh, definitions of hybrid wars and hybrid sure. warriors as their terms not generally known as straw poll I conducted over the last week uh, indicated that not many people are familiar with the term and, and just what it means. But on the training side, the operations now, particularly Afghanistan, is very, very intense but is relatively narrowly focused with the uh, spectrum of, of capabilities that, that the sport helicopter forces uh, particularly but the battlefield helicopter force in general has traditionally had. I detect a uh, uh, great concentration of skills in those areas, but a narrowing of skills and skill fade in areas outside them. I also detect a growing mindset that of this is what we're doing, therefore this is what we do, and that the, that broad range of capabilities to operate in jungle, arctic, um, uh, other conditions, to operate with uh, decks and, uh, and so on, in broadly based literal warfare. Uh, is slowly being uh, and is in danger of being lost. And where the operation is so divorced from peacetime training capabilities, mm -hmm. apart from those lucky enough to go on uh, deployed exercises, is this something that is recognized by JHC? And if so, what resources might be made available to yeah. overcome it? <clears throat> Again, you're, you're, you're spot on the money. It is, um, it is a, a concern of mine. The the broad, the generalist capability of our SH force have taken a back seat because of the operations. It's become, um, we are in danger of becoming uh, desert myopic. <coughs> um, however, it's, it's very firmly recognized. Um, and what I'm trying to do at the moment is to use areas like Kenya and our, the Navy's literal uh, expeds uh, deployments uh, as opportunities to develop the, the, the literal maneuver capability. So, for example, Ocean has just this year, Ocean's been on, uh, exercise Taurus. And, uh, we managed to embark Sea Kings, Lynx, and Chinooks on board. Um, but it was a real stretch, uh, uh, to try and make sure I don't then undermine the harmony, uh, the capability, uh, the fatigue, pressure on families, spares, aircraft availability, and on and on and on, uh, of those in theatre. So it's a very, very fine balancing act, and I'm just giving, I'm just keeping the flame alive. But it, you're spot on, it is a vulnerability. Um, we've got Ariga next year, which will be 
is more ambitious than Taurus in trying to keep the deck operating capability alive uh, and, and lit M. And, and the way I describe this, <clears throat> there are two, it falls into two pieces. There's deck operations, um, which <clears throat> is all about landing on, taking off, operating at sea in bad weather at night and from a moving deck. That, that is a non-discretionary. That, that is a core capability that the JHC desperately needs for its embarked uh, helicopters, without any question, because it could be required at any moment. So I need that capability all the time, and that's the one that takes priority. The more sophisticated capability is the LIT-M amphibious capability, which is, as, as you all probably know, the of highly complex choreographed requirement with our landing force, usually Royal Marines, to go from Ocean, Albion, and <clears throat> go from sea to shore by air or by surface using landing craft. That requires massive practice, um, as, as I know only too well. And that is in greater danger of perishing than the, the former, uh, but no less equally important, because three commander brigade is the, is our small scale focus inter intervention fire brigade for that sort of warfare. And as you know, the 16 air assault brigade is our airborne task force capability uh, for, in the other sense. So both are, are vulnerabilities, and I'm aware of it. And what's very interesting is if I can, when I've been able to broaden uh, and establish training, the, the guys and girls really gives them a boost because it's something different, uh, and it breaks through the monotony of continuous operations, uh, and I'm sure you knew that too. Robin Taylor-Hunt from Tobermecker. Um I observed you mentioned about the hybrid warrior being able to very quickly acquire new technology. And my observation with a civilian, a civil aerospace background is that um, the civil world seems to be much quicker at doing the same sort of process. My question is, how does the UK Ministry of Defence change itself to be able to acquire those technologies perhaps nearly as quickly as the hybrid warrior does? Well, that's what I was hoping you'd tell me. Uh, because, because I'm not sure, because I, I know you, you snuck in. Uh, but I think I may have already mentioned that before you arrived. The, the, you're, again, you're absolutely right. That, that is my principal concern. The, the commercial sector is moving around the wheel faster than we are. Um, and we are painfully slow in, in adapting our defense acquisition processes. Now, we've, we've just, um, Lord Drayson's just been reappointed, uh, back into the defense, uh, <coughs> ministry. And I hope, and he's got a specific task to see this as his, his challenge. So my, I'm really hoping that he's going to help us. He's, his, I'm sure he's been told he's got the defense, um, industrial strategy mark two to develop, uh, and deliver. So that's one of his jobs. Um, but I think we need to be far more agile. And, and that's really the, the, the whole piece. How? I'm not sure. Um, I think, <clears throat> which is really the nub of your question, I think. The, the, I have found that the way that my engagement with industry, I, I've, I'm sure there's lots of defense industry here, but I tried to be provocative at the, uh, EDA conference a few months ago in Brussels. And I was quite disappointed because I got no reaction at all, uh, apart from a phone call from Richard later. Uh, 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 because I said, I, I tried again, look, create a, a graphical, you know, rather, uh, a picture in front of people's minds and, and, and I said look you know we spend I, I looked I, I was about to 
to talk to them. And I thought, where I was looking for inspiration as to what we can do better. Uh, and I looked at a, the um, Arusi Defense Systems magazine, and I found 23 articles in there, 22 and a half of which were all mod-facing on how the mod could do better. Half of them were industry-facing. And I thought, what? That's very odd. Why is an industry looking at itself? Or why aren't we reading about industry looking at itself? So, so then I looked at... Um, uh, McKinsey. I thought McKinsey's quarterly one review might give me some inspiration. And, um, and a, uh, an eminent professor, uh, called Professor Rummelt, uh, said that when, uh, in a situation like this, when you get an extraordinary change in, in circumstances, exactly as Lockhart was talking about in my final quote from Fixing Fail States, th this is a changed moment. This is a moment, or, you know, what the army call a question four moment. What's changed? Um, it's when that happens, industry or commerce generally, business looks for innovative ways of adapting to the new situation. And you get new structures, old structures collapsing, new structures being built up, and, uh, and the new communities overtaking the old ones. And I thought, well, if, if there was ever a moment like that, now is it. So I said to the, the, the assembled masses of industry, I said, look, you know, when we hold a mirror up to ourselves, we see a pretty ugly face. Tell me, when you hold the mirror up to yourselves, what do you see? Blank. <laughs> I got no reaction. Uh, and, and the guys on the, on the podium just gave you know, a, a very, very uh, comprehensive uh, uh, rendition of how well they were doing uh, in each of their interests. Now, maybe I was, I was being naive and you wouldn't have got a proper debate in that situation. But I, I was hoping to see... A, a, a self-critical approach. Now, um, I think that if there really is nothing that can be done in the defense industry and there are no good ideas left, uh, what I have found works best is actually consuming the elephant in small chunks. So where I found the defense industry has worked best is over areas where um, we have encouraged defense industry to work collaboratively um, uh, Augusta Westland did a brilliant job with the getting seeking out to um, Afghanistan in double quick time. Um, I spoke to Nick Whitney and I said, look, can you please see if you can do something about it? Uh, he said, don't worry, leave it with me. He then negotiated with Kinetic and various other people in, in the States to work out a way where using Carson blades, which don't belong to, 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 to Augusta, uh, somehow he could we could accelerate that through kinetic. We get the Chi the Indian Navy five-bladed um, tail rotor uh, on the tail. It gave extra lift. We got it all through in double-quick time. It's fantastic. But that was done at a very, very low level. Um, exactly the same vector uh, is doing a brilliant job at the moment with, with um, eight contractors, eight engineers in Afghanistan today. And <clears throat> because we've got there about nine, uh, and that relieves me of five times that. So every 10 we've got out there, I save 50 of my maintainers. And it's that, that's what I think. I'd like to develop that uh, as a way of operating. But I think probably easier at a lower level than doing it at a, 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 an operational or strategic level in industry. But, but I am only learning. Uh, what do you think? It's a very good question. I, 
I think personally, my, I look at the civil aviation industry, which is my background, and I look at the, the way they strategically look forward and perhaps have a much easy planable situation. But then they make a decision and they just see what's off the shelf and they go and buy it and then they change decisions as they go forward. And to me, it's often about the accounting, funnily enough. That's, that's my personal view. It's about the accounting practices and how Treasury allocates money versus the way that civil does. And to me, that's the core of the problem. Yeah, it's agility. It's being able to use money quickly, wisely, finding the balance between the UOR process, which is brilliant, but not uh, to the exclusion of everything else because that lacks, it just shows that we hadn't anticipated it early enough anyway, although it works very well. So it's, it's highly complex. Hello, sir. My name's Mark Purvis. I'm a Navy test pilot at Boscombe Down. Uh, my question is about, is it the mod's fault, perhaps, in our procurement processes, which prevent us from achieving utility and agility? I'll take two examples. First of all, if you have a major equipment program, for example, Future Links, which inevitably goes through a number of cuts, the first thing they get cuts from a program perhaps from that in the green fleet or the grey fleet is to lose those utilities, those swing roles. Um, conversely, on the UR side, if we were introducing a piece of kit where perhaps there's two options and one might be more future-proof, actually, when it comes down to cost, then we're, we're forced down the more narrow route, which prevents us then from conducting those, those swing roles. I just wonder how you might uh, deal with those problems. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think it is that our processes are at fault. Um, and I... I I hope that the fact that we are so short of money now and we're fighting a, the war of what I think is the war of our generation, um, I hope that circumstance will force defence to, to be more agile, exactly as I talked about, and not fall into the trap we did earlier. So my, my hopes, I haven't met Lord Drayson, but, uh, but I do hope that he, he can see this, and I'm sure he can. It was, it was a great pity that he, he left last time, so, uh, and I think industry would share that view with me so so no you're, you're, you're absolutely right um, and there's lots for us to do but I sense we, we've got to do it together uh, Jim Norris from SEA uh, you asked uh, the defendants and industry to hold the mirror up to itself so I'm going to yeah. have a go at, uh, at uh, doing that um, your, your, from your lecture it, it seemed that agility was what you what you primarily sought yes and I guess that, that there's and, and you referred specifically to technology yes yeah, it, uh, but I think it's more than just technology that you seek, uh, you seek agility in. I think there's a um, commercial dimension to that as well, in as much that uh, responding to financial pressures within MOD. I think there's an oper clearly there's an operational side to that as well. So yep. that, that's the, the sort of scenario, if you like. Yes. Um, and I suppose within the defence industry, the, the, way, the way in which the tide is flowing is in the opposite direction. Um, the, the, tenants, the, the, the trend is for... Um, commercially, organisations are becoming bigger, yeah, um, and and through buyouts and amalgamations, and and that doesn't, I don't think, um, lend itself to agility, and uh, and the same on techno uh, technological side as well. Um, procurement projects are becoming more complex, um, and that that again tie means that bigger players need to be involved, and and I suppose perhaps the answer. Um, is getting getting a better mix of the of the smaller players in the in the defence industry working with the bigger players to get a, a, a um, the best of both the, yeah. the 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 agility and responsiveness of the of the small player and the, and the innovation of the small player and the the uh, financial yeah. backing and and uh, commercial um, 
clout of the bigger player. And yeah. that's, that's. No, thank you. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, thank you. A bit like a reunion, and it's good to be here. Um, Commodore Bill Covington retired. Um, I found it interesting that you talk about, or you mentioned EORs, and as we all do, tend to roll our eyes when we talk about the EOR process. However, we use it heavily, Mm. and actually it's the traditional procurement system which is almost the one that fails, because it goes on forever. Um, We don't, we invest a huge amount in high quality um, capabilities, but by the time they actually get there, they're not quite what we wanted. Mm. So, I don't know, thinking that while you were talking of the challenge, perhaps we're actually facing this the wrong way and that what we're not good at is designing our core capability mm. to be able now with open architecture, proper yeah. open architecture architecture software, to actually strap on the capabilities when you get there as opposed to what you think in, you might want to have in 10 years' time and and actually build the UOR process properly into our procurement strategy. Yeah. And along with that, um, I noted that Rolls-Royce have particularly successfully um, generated an operational cell that they use to stay abreast of the requirements of mm. of all three services um, mm. in the air world. Mm. And that came about at the beginning of the Iraq war, I think. Mm. Um, Colin Green, I think, instigated that after discussion. And I don't know whether, um, and I can't remember the name of the, um, the team at Augusta Western who are looking at um, sort of amalgamating the the Augusta Western Tallis Selex Consortium. I can't remember what they've got a name for them, but I can't remember what it is. But perhaps the primes actually need to take an operational cell. So instead of it just being Nick Whitney, hmm. um, who, uh, as I mentioned, it is, uh, is a key figure in Augusta Western, obviously. But rather than it being a key personal task, that actually that these, that you have an operational cell, which is not only responsible for support and provision and coordination, but actually is also responsible for procurement, you know, future procurement decisions of what they think their platform needs, mm. working up the options, and engaging better with the tier two, tier three suppliers, who are the boys who, you know, in dungarees who come up with bright ideas, who generally can't get past the primes to get at the MOD yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, so actually build in a system of how you do it. The risk being, of course, is the commercialism of the prime, the primes. And how do you, how do they defend their position? Yeah. Um, anyway, there's some thoughts trying to answer no, no. your question that no, you posed to you. us. And I'd be interested in what your thoughts are. Today. No, I think, I think you're right. The, the, uh, we, we can't forget. I mean, it's all very well. I'm very conscious that I can spout away, but actually there's a bottom line to achieve in, in industry. Uh, and, and, um, with the, with the economic downturn as it is, you know, life is hard. Uh, and so that, that's, uh, cre- created huge pressure. On, on the industry in itself anyway. The, um, UR process, uh, I don't want to mislead anybody. It is fantastic. It is really, really good. And it's thanks to the UR process, exactly what you, you've just said, uh, that all our aircraft are flying in Afghanistan at the moment. From defensive aid suites to blades to aircraft to engines to secure comms to everything. Um, so it does work really, really well. The, the, uh, <clears throat> the difficulty is is that it is not an ideal route for the treasury, um, and the treasury being extremely supportive in, in helping us, but you know they, they, there's always a sort of question at the back of their mind saying, well, why didn't you think about this earlier? Uh, and 
that then is is an interesting balance between having the right stuff, theatre entry standard stuff in theatre, and how many enough at home to train with before you get there. So, so um, no, I, I think your route is is the right way. We we get it right the first time and create a uh, a core capability which is hybrid focused uh, that is capable of rapid technological insertion you know, and 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 exchange. So I think you're right, and I think your your ops team is a good idea, but I don't know whether who else in the industry here who they've already got them. Uh, Peter Norris, past president of the society and here wearing a, a, a number of hats. Um, uh, and I was going to pick up one or two points that, that Bill, uh, Bill made. Certainly the only fo- feedback loop that there is about the effectiveness of the MOD's planning system is the scale of UORs, because they're an indication of how far it was wrong. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, that said, to meet the needs of the moment, it has been extremely successful, as you say. Absolutely. The problem is, and it applies particularly to air systems and aircraft, when they return from that, they are often have to be grounded because they are not flight worthy, because they don't meet peacetime engineering uh, restraints, and we certainly had to do that with a lot of aircraft that we brought back, or fixed wing aircraft anyway, that we brought back from the Gulf. And of course, the young men and women flying them saying, What on earth is all this about? We've been flying around in war with you with all this kit, it was absolutely brilliant, and you've taken it off us. Hmm. And it then has to be engineered in to meet peacetime constraints, and then you have to address the whole question as to whether it was funded only for that war as a UOR or whether it is going to be brought into the core program because it's proved its worth across the piece. In which case, where is the funding for it? Because the Treasury has not provided you with the funding for that long-term commitment. So that sounds as though it's a real process issue, but it is a real issue because it's a real money issue. It is. Uh, but it, but it does boil down to, uh, to that, to that process issue. If I can just pick up one or, one or two other points, uh, um, uh, about things that need to need, that could change, um, I think one of the one of the problems there is that quite often industry, very often industry, is man marking what's going on in on the government side of the fence. So it's not just a defence issue, um, and that doesn't half increase the volume because of the huge bureaucracy yeah. that there is across government. Yeah. Far too many people have their finger in the pie right. of the decision making. And that's what slows it down. Yeah. And it slows it down in industry as well, because they've got to answer all those stakeholders and all those constituencies right. and have a means of understanding what they are. Yeah. So um, if we could reduce the number of uh, stakeholders who have a say um, uh, in, in decisions, and this isn't just for defense, it's across mm. the board, I think you'll find that being reflected in industry as well. And that, by per se, ought to make even the big corporations a bit smaller yeah. and a bit more fleet of foot. Mm. I certainly think the rubber hits the road when you come face-to-face with the contract. Quite often in a UOR, there's goodwill on both sides to get on and do it, and MD tends to pay a bit more than it would if it were a peacetime thing, notwithstanding the fact there's only a very short time, and therefore you can't spend as much as you could doing it over a longer time. Yeah. But nonetheless, um, that th- th- tends to be a bit more expensive anyway, um, but MOD pays it because they've got to have it there and then, and industry gets on with it. But under normal circumstances where the profit margins are actually uh, pretty low, uh, you find that those commercial decisions don't often take a long time. And PFIs in particular take even longer yeah. to, um, uh, for the contractual activities. So 
some something needs to be done to discuss at the commercial level yeah. how that can be speeded up. Um, uh, two final points. One, I think when it comes uh, to the future defence review, whatever it's going to be called, um, we've all got to face up to the fact that notwithstanding what we may feel about it, there ain't going to be any more resources. If anything, there are going to be fewer. That's right. Um, um, I, 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 I don't dissent from your view, though, that the battlefield helicopter has got utility across the piece, whether mm. it's on state and state or, um, or more, the more expeditionary warfare, uh, and, and you drew the distinction between mm. them. I think in that particular case, it's maybe an easier argument to deploy for battlefield helicopters having a case to be there than it is for the deterrent or, um, mm. or arguably even for carriers. Mm. Um, um, but in some respects, industry will step up to the mark to help you as it, uh, as it often does. Um, but it needs to know actually what are the gaps? What do you particularly, what, what would you particularly like to do? Mm. We could provide you with a lot more synthetics to, do you have sufficient mission rehearsal cap capability that helps the guys mm. and girls out in theatre? Uh, that might make it better mm. and could be a pretty cheap thing. But what about your defensive aid suites? Are they sufficient? Do they work? There's lots of those things. Mm. I'm sure the dialogue is going on in different parts of industry, but we are, tend to be responsive mm. to where we see your gaps and your needs. Sure. Inevitably. Sure. Sorry. Yeah, thank Bit you. Bit of a long-winded, <laughs> lot of comments. <laughs> thank you. Just um, as an aside, I did talk to Lord Grayson not long ago on yeah. a Home Office issue, and uh, during that conversation, I actually said that uh, I knew more about the MOD procurement system than the Home Office. To which he said the, ho the MOD is a hell of a lot better off than the Home Office. Oh, really? So, uh, so yeah, it's not all gloomy. Gosh, hey, good. Gosh. Good evening, uh, Steve Garden from Lockheed Martin. Um, Admiral, Admiral, you um, highlighted the utility of helicopters across the spectrum of operations. Um, the MOD has been short of battlefield aviation for decades. <clears throat> um, one of the reasons has been because all three services haven't viewed helicopters as being sexy. Um, with the advent of Joint Helicopter Command with the last defence review, do you foresee the helicopters um, across the piece being more successful in perhaps addressing that shortfall in aviation lift in the next defence review? I think that uh, we, we've now got a position where we are pretty front and centre in most people's <coughs> minds. Um, the various secretaries of state we've had have been pretty uh, sharp on, on helicopter capability. Uh, I've, it's only indicative by a number of times I've been summoned to, <laughs> to uh, speak, you know, uh, sing for my supper in, in, his, in his office, uh, depending on who, which one I'm talking, you know, which one's in at the time. Uh, and uh, they certainly... Um, Des Brown got very fed up with, with being quizzed in the House of Commons by, by the opposition over helicopters. So, so it's, it's got a very high profile. Um, D-joint cap, the, the, that area in mod constantly have, you know, answer questions about helicopters. So it is something that is talked about every single day. Um, Quinton Davis said he talks about helicopters more than anything else as Mindez. So, so I think, I am cautiously optimistic that our primacy will be there. Um, uh, exactly as Peter just said, I think there's going to be a lot of d debate going on for the next review. Um, the, the, one of the issues that you, somebody may be asking and, uh, and, and about to, which is, oh, what about not having a champion uh, for, for helicopters per se? Uh, and the sort of the trite 
uh, a joinder to that as well. The Navy talks about carriers, the RAF talks about fast jets, and the Army talk about tanks and, and, and troops. Uh, well, who's champion for helicopters? Well, actually, the uh, what's interesting is that the Vice Chief of Defence Staff is our champion for helicopters, and he's very vocal. Uh, and I hope that when it comes to it, all three chiefs will will represent helicopters appropriately. I know I'm certain that uh, the new CGS, Sir David Riches, is, is, sees himself as a helicopter champion, uh, alongside, I'm sure, Singfleet and the new, I mean, new uh, First Sea Lord and new CAS. So, so I'm cautiously optimistic, but like all these things, never assume. So I, I will make sure <laughs> we're, we're at the highest priority we can. So, thank you very much, Pete. The Society would like to uh, report this extreme gratitude. Thank you.